Welcome to the OT Roundtable, episode number one. What are the occupational implications of COVID-19? The OT Roundtable is a podcast where we discuss a wide range of topics related to the field of occupational therapy. We are here to shed light on things that are happening within our profession and bring awareness to these topics through raw and honest conversations. Uh, my name is Brock Cook. You may know me from the Occupied Podcast. With me, we also have Sarah. Introduce yourself, Hi. Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah. I am from OT for Life. We also have Michelle. Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm from Incorporate Mindfulness. And with us today as our guest, we have the wonderful Jesse Wilson. Please give us a little intro, Jesse. Hi, I'm uh, Jesse Wilson. I'm an assistant professor at the School um, of Occupational Therapy at Western University. Um, I live in Forest, Ontario, Canada, and um, I also have a little bit of a school health practice as well, where I see kids in sort of rural schools in this area to provide school health services and supports. All right, so... Like we were discussing a bit earlier, like we really wanted to sink our teeth into this, uh, I guess, pandemic event that is probably, uh, if you haven't heard that this is going on, then I'd be more worried about what's going on with you. But we kind of wanted to look at this with our occupational lenses on and see how we can break this down, how we can analyze what's going on, how do we can make sense of this using OT. Um, I think... For starters, let's. What's actually happening in each, each person's world? You want to start, Sarah? What's been going on? You're in California. Um, what's what's happening with this in in California? So I think the biggest change for me was two days ago. I want to say we officially the entire state went out went on lockdown, and. It actually, like, for me personally, didn't change too much because I had already been staying home for the past about week and a half, almost two weeks now. So when we got the official orders, it was easy that I was able to stay home. But it, I want to say about maybe a week ago, they locked down the restaurants, the bars, like any sort of public public place. And then maybe four days after that, they were like, nope, everything, everything's done except grocery stores, pharmacies hospitals, uh, necessary doctor's appointments and that type of stuff. So if I, if I remember correctly, I believe we were the first state in the United States to completely go on lockdown. And yeah, it's been an interesting past couple of days over here. And usually you're working in home health or doing a lot of home visits uh, for kids. How is that affected by what's happening? So basically over the past week, uh, my, so I'm in early intervention and the organization decided to allow teletherapy, which is huge for us. We've never even, I don't think they've ever even considered that before. And about a week ago they opened it up. And so the past couple of weeks we've been, we've been trying to figure out how to roll that out, what it's going to look like, <clears throat> how we can best facilitate helping our clients and 
kind of navigating them also through this time period because a lot of them now have kids that are other kids that are at home, other family members that are home. The parents are trying to navigate their work schedules or maybe they're changing work schedules. And so, yeah, it's I think the, the word is really kind of this change and a lot of disruption that's been happening both for me as a therapist, as a business owner, but then also for my clients that I work with as well. Michelle, you're also in the States, but you're in Utah. Is it different Mm -hmm. uh, restrictions being put in there or how's it happening in your part of the world? Um, So the restrictions that we have, um, and I think it's probably also helpful to say like the date that we're doing this interview, because I just, I feel like it changes so often. So today's March 22nd. Um, and we have um, no more than 10 people can ga- be gathered in a place, which I feel like is, um, is that across the states? Do you guys know besides you, like in California and some of the others? Um, so that's kind of what's happening there. Um, and basically, I am in an outpatient pediatric facility. And that it's it's been a really interesting time um, trying to figure out where our place is in helping, um, and also serving our patients. So, um, we up until, gosh, it changes day by day, but we have been seeing patients and now we're starting to kind of, um, taper down our caseload and see really more of the critical patients that really need to be seen. But then there's a lot of barriers with that as well of, um, just overall safety. We have a lot of kids that are immunocompromised, so although we are limiting the number of people in the lobby and the, and the therapy gyms and stuff like that, um, we're really just trying to figure out how to navigate this time. Um, so we are kind of, we're definitely cutting back on our caseloads and then we are offering to go help in other areas of the hospital. So as an occupational therapist, I am going to be now changing my role into going to the hospital and helping make sure that people are using hand sanitizer and know where to go and helping kind of with some of the workflow. Um, So we're all having to be really adaptable. And I think it's tough. You know, we really care about our patients and care about what we do. So we're having to totally change roles. Um, And I think that's something we'll definitely explore more because I think every setting is really being impacted in different ways. So that's kind of where we're at here in Utah. And is that a like being put into a different role? Is that a mandatory thing or is it something you volunteer for or how is that, how are they working that? Um, I should say they're, they're giving us that option. So we have um, the option of taking PTO and they also have offered us if we want to take more PTO and basically like go into the negative and then like slowly work that off, um, which has its own challenges. Uh, and then we have options of taking leave without pay. We have options of, uh, again, like, um, moving into this workflow, but there won't be enough, um, opportunities for us to work in outpatient, all of us. Partially, I think, because of the number of people allowed in the clinic and just the, the um, caseload, we're really trying to put our services where, where we're, we can help more. So, Nice, nice. And Jesse, how? what's going on in Canada? Are you guys just living um, free and loving no, life? No, we're not no. living free. Uh, it, yeah, it's um, probably very similar um, to what Sarah and Michelle said. So it's interesting because I live in a rural town. 
So many of the decisions around closing businesses and taking extra precautions were done um, by individuals on their own account. Um, so prior to there being sort of the expectation that businesses would close and that it would only move to essential services and before the border was closed between Canada and the U.S. in particular, we're close to the Michigan border. Uh, so only allowing obviously Canadians returning to Canada, especially because we are currently, we've just finished our March break. Uh, so when all the uni students as well as all the school students are off on vacation for a week um, so they could still come back into Canada however have to self-isolate for 14 days uh, there's border travel in terms of like goods and you know trade that is happening but that's about it uh, all non-essential OT services and other hospital services have been restricted uh, things that are currently still open are the grocery stores, pharmacies, hospitals, LCBOs, uh, which people were interested about, which is our Liquor Control Board of Ontario. So they're like the bottle shops in Australia. They're still open and stuff. So uh, those sorts of things, all the daycares, all the schools, everything else is closed. Um, I watched a little bit of a announcement by the Ontario provincial government yesterday talking about schools and they were closed or they currently are closed for two weeks starting on Monday uh, to help with the self-isolation 14 days after March break. However, there's the feeling that it will likely extend beyond that. Uh, the province of Alberta has said that school will be sort of suspended indefinitely at this point in time. However, Ontario as a province haven't made that um, account. We're in a really interesting time in the province of Ontario around schools and daycares and school services because our teachers were fighting very strongly because they were in contract negotiations for um, yeah, actually to prevent increasing class sizes, decrease of funding for students with disabilities, as well as preventing online learning, which is interesting because our provincial, um, the education minister just announced that we will be moving to online learning to help support student learning over the course of these two weeks. So we're in an interesting space, I think, in Ontario with that. Um, in terms of my role academically, uh, it was interesting. I was teaching a class to the first year students on Thursday. Within the three hour time frame, the NHL, so hockey was canceled, mm -hmm. uh, which was obviously a joke around Canada as the, big, the biggest upset ever when the NHL is uh, suspended. Um, schools were closed for two weeks after March break. And I had made the announcement about the importance of being, you know, mindful when you're away on March break and how we need to self-isolate. And then the Friday, we moved to online learning. Wow. Everything over this period of a week, which is our March break, has now been shifted. So there is no in-person classes. University is only functioning on essential personnel at this point in time. So all of us as professors, lecturers are working from home and delivering all of our content for our students for the remainder of the term online. Yeah. It sounds fairly similar. Wow. I think everyone, we're, we're probably a little less restricted than, than you guys at the moment in Australia. Uh, as of about 
four hours ago. We've just got new restrictions announced starting at lunchtime tomorrow. They're trying to... So they, we started from like with a gathering limit. I think the limit was 100 people indoors, 500 outdoors. Um, they A lot of the sports, like the major sports in Australia, were continuing to play but without crowds. Uh, it was awkward to watch. Um, we watched a footy game, actually, Brock. Yeah. Scott found it on television, so we watched a footy game. Very strange. People score and there's no noise. There's no cheering, no nothing. It was very awkward. Uh, but as of... so. They were making recommendations for self-isolating if possible. There wasn't anything sort of mandated uh, around that as yet. Uh, and then yesterday, two days ago, 3,000, 3,500 people showed up to Monday Beach and they shut it down. And since then, uh, we now, well, as of, like I said, four hours ago, we now have restrictions coming in tomorrow where they're essentially closing down all of the major, well, their explanation, the government's explanation was major gathering hubs. So all public venues, indoor sporting events, uh, pubs, clubs, uh, other vent gyms uh, was another one. There's a big list of, of things that they're closing down. Cafes and restaurants are no longer able to have seating uh, they are still able to open for takeaway, but that's it. Uh, yeah, so there's a a lot of confusion. I think because it's not just a blanket, everything is closed, and there's sort of nuanced mm. about you know these different things. It's causing confusion among people. I personally don't find it too confusing. It seems fairly logical to me. But um, the other thing that's causing I've seen causing some dismay is at this present time, schools are still open. Uh, for us, they're, well, it's slightly different in each state. In Victoria and New South Wales, their term was meant to end at the end of this week. Uh, and I think Queensland, it's the week after. And I'm not sure what the other states are. But the Fed, at a federal level, they've said that schools staying open. Uh, till school holidays and then after that they're going to see, you know, things are changed. Like you said before, things are changing so rapidly. So at the end of the school holidays, which is two weeks long, uh, it might be different. They might have to close. But for now they're staying open. But then there's been two states so far that have put their own state mandate over the top and they're closing early. So they're closing on Tuesday. I, they're essentially making the rest of the week people free. Um, the, I think the big stink about it is the chief medical officer for Australia is saying, or is saying essentially that there's no evidence that kids are, uh, are transporting the, the, yeah. the virus. So that's why they're, they're keeping it open. And when there's only one teacher in a room that makes the teacher at a low risk, if that's the evidence. So that's, that was the reasoning that they gave anyway. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think, yeah, a lot of people from my personal point of view, the university is, sounds like it's kind of implementing, I guess, almost a forced, like you've got your March break. Is that what you called it? March break? March break. Yeah. We, we've, we don't usually have one, but we now have one. So this week we have no classes. 
uh, and like essentially, I think the, the the correct term was all classes online and in person delivery are paused, uh, and the staff are meant to be using this week to finalise uh, online delivery for the rest of the semester. The university campus itself is open, so like staff are still free, even students are free to you know use the library, use whatever they need. Um, still, oh, that was the other, the other rule that we have and we've had for a, a week or so is uh, the social distancing, which is ours is now one person per four square metres, which is pretty big. That's like mm. maybe like four and a half people in this room. So it's a fair bit of space, which, you know, I guess it, it, like our library and everything is pretty big, but you still you're going to struggle if you're trying to move around there and still stay that distance away from people. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been interesting. And I think a lot of people from what I've seen, uh, some, I mean, some people aren't taking it probably as seriously as it needs to, but the others I think are expecting it to be finished in a week. And I, I, all, everything I've seen is indicating this is here for quite a while, which is one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to look at it from this occupational point of view, because there's going to be some adjustments that uh, may end up being permanent adjustments to people's routines and their habits and, and their occupations. They may be semi-permanent, but there's going to be some stuff that's going to change for good because of this. I wanted I thought, to, Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you go. I wanted to touch on that confusion piece, Brock, because I think that word is just like really kind of, it just really stands out to me right now, because especially coming from a place that's been on complete lockdown, my husband went out yesterday for a bike ride. Like we're able to go out and again, we're supposed to be able to like social distance. So you can go for a walk, you can go for a run, Mm. but be by yourself or keep space between people. And he went out for a bike ride along the beach. And he basically was like, you would never know anything was going on. There were so many people out there hanging out all ages, big groups. And when he came back and he was telling me that I'm like, here I am. I've been in my house, like trying to do my part. And I can see if you're not really paying attention to the good sources of information, you go out into the world, you go to the grocery market and you see people that are just stockpiling and there's panic and it's just like utter chaos. And then you go to the beach, you go to the park and you see people that are just hanging out, having a good time. And I can see where that really just leads to this confusion of like, it's a big deal. Is it not a big deal? Mm -hmm. How do I start to navigate that as a person when some people are freaking out and other people are acting like absolutely nothing is happening? I think that's a really important point to, um, to bring up is this, this perception of information, I think is an interesting one. And and I said this because my um, mother and father-in-law just recently returned from Florida. They were there. They usually go down for the month of March and spend the sort of worst part of winter down there, I guess. Um, Returning home, I felt very sad for them because, and I still do because they're still under self-isolation for 14 days. I think they have about seven days left and they want to see their grandbabies and they want to interact with people, but they're taking it very seriously um, and staying within their house and we're dropping off groceries and all those sorts of things. And then you hear these people out and about who are publicly 
you know, in the grocery store saying, oh, I just came back from Florida, but the house is empty of groceries and I need to do some shopping and then I'll go home. And um, it's this interesting idea that for some reason, I feel that people have this perception that the virus is not going to affect them based on various personal attributes or factors that they have. So I'm wealthy, I'm white, I'm in decent health, I live in a small town, you know, these things that then make them sort of, you know, I don't, I don't know, in not vulnerable to the disease, or if they are, then oh, well, I'll just sort it out when it happens. This sort of I versus us mentality, which is really hard, I think, for that unified transmission of knowledge and support Mm. when there's fractions of the population doing different things, but they might have exposure to the same types of information, but they're selective on what they choose to adhere to at various times or not. It's whatever suits them or fits into their pre-existing routines, roles, habits that we're quick to uptake. But that which causes us to have that disruption or have that change is difficult. So it's harder for people who need to take on that information and make those daily adjustments to do so. And I think there's a lot of tension where now we've moved to even in social media within my own circles, people taking photographs of others at the grocery store who have just returned from vacation and posting it as a social shaming. Yes. They've just come back, you know, in a small town. I know they've just come back and now they're not even distancing themselves. What makes them better than us? Why Mm -hmm. should we have to self-isolate, but they don't have to? Um, which is really interesting. Uh, I've never seen that happen before, but it's it's happening now. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's really interesting. I've been thinking about as well as this like shaming piece that I think starts to emerge that like judging in all of us of, yeah, you're at the grocery store and you're like, oh, look at what they're buying or um, you're um, in the area that I live, there's a lot of kids and they're all playing at the park. And so then there's this online community where people are shaming other moms for letting their kids play on the playground. And um, it's just, it's, it's interesting how it, it can either bring us together or turn us against against each other. And I definitely feel like um, I'm seeing both sides. Um, so it's interesting. I was just having a look at some of the, at, cause that's what I, who I am as a person, apparently. Um, because there's, there was reports today. And I think this is one of the issues is like you sort of alluded to there as well. Jesse. I think one of the reasons is initially when it first started, it was reported that it was a very mild, like a very mild, uh, illness if you got it. So I, I, for a lot of the people I've spoken to don't care because they're like, oh, forget it. Like, it's like the flu. I'll just get over it. It's not, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy. And that doesn't, yes, there's a higher, I think that one of the big things is there's a higher risk of mortality the older you are or if you've got other underlying health conditions. But having a look at the stats, I think from memory, the stats may have been Australia, but I'm sure it's very similar everywhere. But the highest age group that is carrying is between 20 and 35. 
So you people may not feel like, you know, I'm not going to get sick or they may not get sick, but they may pass it on to someone who does really get sick and not even know it. That's the thing that I think is, I guess, motivating me to actually adhere to staying at home and doing what I'm actually told uh, is the fact that I may pass this on to someone who doesn't handle it as well as I might without even knowing, without even getting any symptoms at all. And I think that's that's probably one of the scariest things with regards to this particular illness, as far as I'm concerned anyway. Yeah, I, I agree, Brock. But I think that that mindset, that moving away from an individualistic perception of how what health is, is hard for some people. I mean, we, we talk about that in occupational therapy and occupational science. I mean... You know, Dr. Um, Rudman was one of the first sort of people to talk about the importance of moving away from an individualistic perception of health and, and, and how we look at disability to looking at it being a social issue, right? That, that our health is directly interconnected and linked with other people's health. And when we make that shift, we change then the way in which we carry out these precautionary measures. And I think for us as healthcare professionals, especially, you know, working with vulnerable populations who are more susceptible to this, we do think about the impact it has on others versus just ourselves. But the general population might not have that same lens to view that through. And it's harder then because it's I, me, need my routine, my roles, my health versus our health our occupations, our sense of belonging within a larger community. So I think that that shift is starting. I think that the, I hope it is anyways, I'm optimistic when I see colleagues and Facebook friends and the general public posting really positive affirmations about feeling like I'm doing my part right? I have purpose. I have a sense of belonging. I have a role in managing this virus by staying at home. Mm -hmm. And once I think that happens and we recognize that we need to take more of this community approach, hopefully that helps to, you know, what we're saying here in Canada, you know, sort of flatten that curve, I guess, in terms of those that are affected this virus. Like I wonder whether that's because that's a that sort of very individualistic view on everything is a very westernized view, especially for health. I wonder if there are other cultures, other countries that have that more community view on life, whether they're managing this better or differently, or how they're managing it. Because I, I think you're right. I think I've seen a very slow change, and hopefully it hurries up, but. A very slow change in you know people around here uh, in how they're sort of viewing it. And I think that there's been campaigns around like you're not doing it for you, you're doing it so that you know you don't pass this infection on to someone who can't manage it. Um, those sorts of things I think are helping. I think I wonder if that perspective is if it does turn into a major change whether. Like that could be a massive paradigm for just Western culture in general, if that actually does happen on a a fairly wide basis. Mm-hmm. Being able to One of the- think of health as a community thing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I heard the other day that 
has really kind of stuck with me. And I think it just plays right into what we're talking about is I think a lot of people are thinking, well, how do I not get the virus? How do I not get sick? How do I, right? Like I'm focused on me. How do I not get this? And rather than thinking that way, the, the, the article that I, that I heard that I was reading was saying, you should pretend like we all have it. And how do you not transmit it? How do you not pass it on to somebody else? If you, if you honestly think that you have it, would you be going to the beach? Would you be going to the grocery store? Would you be continuing to do these things if you thought you had it? Not running the risk that you could get it, pretend that you have it. And I was like, that's actually a really way to kind of put yourself in check and think about the other people and not just like, oh, well, I'm, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm not going to get it type of thing. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, what do you guys think about, I'm just curious about other ways that we can kind of shift from this me to we, I, I've seen a lot on social media, but I'm curious, um, any things in your communities or any ideas that you guys have of how we can help that shift? I, I, I don't know if there is a right answer, but I'm, yeah, I'm curious. I, 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 well, it's one of those things where I doubt there's like one answer. Uh, and I think it'll be a number of things if it does manage to happen. One of the things that I've seen that sort of makes me think that it might help is, uh, I guess, trying to, in a way, like break that mob mentality. Because there's at the moment, there's, there's the panic is more doing more damage than the pandemic. Uh, in a lot of cases, there's people that are, you know, like we talked about earlier, like buying all the all the food and toiletries and all of that sort of stuff. I don't think there's any toilet paper left in the world for no particular reason other than people are panicking about what may or may not happen. And I think a lot of that is due to we are very connected in today's society. The, everyone has a voice with social media which is a really good thing, but it's also a really bad thing because it also means that not everyone has a filter for all of those voices and not everyone is actually able to filter out essentially what is the rubbish information and what is really good quality information. Um, one thing I've been trying to explain is I feel like I've got a fairly good grasp on what's like even just the statistics side of it is trying to explain to people like what's actually happening. Um, Thing, and I actually really like the way Sarah put it uh, about pretending you've already got it. But one thing I'm trying to explain to a few people recently is all of these measures have got nothing to do with you catching the illness. I, you're going to get it. This it predicted something like a 60% infection rate by the end of by, by the time it we find a, a vaccine or something. The all of the isolation measures and all of that is simply to keep the number of cases that we have at any one time under the threshold that the health service can actually cope with. So there's no point in going, oh, it's, it's got nothing to do with the individual. Even the, the, the I guess, the, all of the different measures, doesn't even matter what country you're in, they're for, on a community level basic got absolutely nothing to do with stopping any individual from getting the disease they're essentially writing it up the only thing that's going to stop us from getting it is when they get a vaccine that works so it's more about protecting the community from 
blowing up its health service. I've heard stories already about, I think it was in France, it was a hospital in France where they were having to, the doctors were having to choose which patients to intubate because they didn't have enough equipment. That is scary. Like you're actually literally having to choose who's going to die because you don't have enough equipment. Um, so that's what flatten the curve and all that's about. Like it's a, it's just about keeping the number of cases below what the health service can cope with. Mm-hmm. And we were talking earlier, like there's a number of, uh, we were talking, there's a number of gin distilleries that are now converting to making uh, hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard about something else. Uh, I saw in the news just before the cast of Grey's Anatomy are donating all of the masks and stuff that they use on set as props. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, like there's a whole <laughs> heap of stuff. I thought I, there was somewhere else. I can't remember exactly where it was, but they were converting their factory to start making masks as well. Um, it was a, a clothing, like an athletic yeah, clothing line I that I saw one, that they started doing that. Yeah. Uh, like awesome. there's a lot of things to start. Essentially what they're trying to do is increase the capacity of the health service too, because obviously the, we need to try and flatten the curve, but if we can increase the capacity, that still gives us some headroom. But again, it's got nothing to do with stopping people actually catching the illness. It's got to do with stopping people from dying from it is the main thing. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point too. even just, um, I mean, I don't have an answer for how do we build community. I think we do it in a bunch of different ways. I think that, you know, as Brock said, the positives of social media, seeing uh, friends, uh, you know, posting ideas, suggestions, thoughts of, you know, coloring pictures and having your children post them in the windows. So when you're outside walking, almost like what we would call a barn quilt, uh, you know, that you look at that and it offers words of inspiration, you know, happiness and joy. So bringing community together like that, um, throwing out ideas and suggestions of great new free kids apps or mm-hmm. worksheets or television programs or things like that. But I think an interesting point of uh, this donation of time, of services, of things um, I saw today too about uh, sewing up masks for mm-hmm. <clears throat> hospitals where nurses were really struggling and, and different things like that. And around this area that boomed when Australia was uh, having their wildfires and a lot of crafters and craft guilds came together locally to produce hundreds of thousands of different sort of animal pouches, slings, blankets. Uh, you know, it's this idea of giving people different occupation right it's it's the idea of giving purpose especially when we think about it from a crafters guild kind of perspective of making face masks or making pouches for joeys who have been you know orphaned because of the bushfire it is keeping people busy engaging in a new occupation or the same occupation with a different purpose of feeling like you're giving back to a global community through doing And whatever that is, whether that's a suggestion to another mother of a great app for their child, or whether it's sitting down at your sewing table and creating masks that maybe are in short supply in hospitals. But I think that occupation sits at the heart of that feeling of purpose, right? In terms of Mm -hmm. creating this global community, which Mm -hmm. is interesting for us, I think. Yeah, for sure. 
And I think too, just like using technology, I've seen a lot of people that are posting Zoom calls or Skype sessions of like a happy hour of them and their Mm -hmm. friends hanging out and they're all virtual and like base and game nights. I've seen like all sorts of different things where I think originally it was like, oh, well, we're going to be isolated. We're going to be stuck in our house. What are we going to do? Where now it's like, we can still do the exact same thing. It might just look slightly different or we can pick up a new skill. Like we now have the time and like some of this freedom to do stuff. It just mm-hmm. might look a little bit different, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. And so I, I, I really like what you said, Jesse, because I think it is just kind of reflecting a little bit and then starting to think outside the box of how we can help and how we as a community can really kind of band together to facilitate the health across the board. Right. And I like that idea too, of like, this could be a time to explore different occupations that we really just haven't had the time to do. Um, I actually bought a guitar yesterday um, and I, I've never played it, something that I've always wanted to do. And so it's like, now's the time to try. Um, and so I'm having a, a Facebook or no, um, a FaceTime lesson later with a friend and we're both in the, in the same city, but we're FaceTiming to learn and I'm going to try learning it over FaceTime. So I think, yeah, I love what you guys shared as well that, um, the pictures in the window I thought was really sweet. And I think I'm going to actually do that today with my nieces. So yeah, I love those ideas. So next episode, you're going to play us a song. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) You could do our theme music. (laughs) I'm struggling really. I like, I, yes, but I may have one note that I can do. Oasis Wonderwall. Isn't that the song everyone plays? (laughs) Yes. But I think that's, that's one of the things that's, uh, I, I think kind of scares people is, I mean, change is scary. Change is, well, it's not always scary, but it's it's always uncomfortable in even the smallest way right through to the biggest way, depending on the size of the change or the impact that change is going to have. And I think for a lot of people, I know a lot of people that don't have any hobbies or anything at home. Like there's nothing that they actually do at home, especially like, you know, really social people uh, or, you know, people that might live alone in their own sort of house. Like there's nothing that they would usually do. Everything they do is outdoors or outside of the house. So this for them is going to be a lot bigger change than like someone like me, who's quite a homebody. I've got like, I could probably live here for the rest of my life and not worry unless if I ran out of food, but like I've got a large yard, I've got the dog, I've got a gym, I've got my shed, I've got all my tools in the shed. I can build things if I want to. Like I can, I got plenty to do if I do get isolated. We're not we're not restricted to home, mandated restricted. But I, I for me, it's going to be a much smaller change than it's going to be for a lot of people. And I think with those changes in occupation comes, and the other thing is like we were saying earlier, like probably me and Jesse with regards to our work, we can work from home. So yes, it's going to be slightly different, but there's people that are losing jobs completely, especially people in service industries. Um, that's, that's a huge change for people. Like all of a sudden there was people that would have during the announcement today in Australia about the new restrictions this afternoon or this evening, that literally that would have been their notice to find out that they no longer had a job because as of lunchtime tomorrow, pubs, clubs, sporting venues, all of that are closed. 
So <laughs> even that, that exact point in time would have been terrifying for a lot of people, especially casuals who, you know, don't have sick leave and don't have, uh, you know, normal uh, annual leave, don't have sort of a salary to fall back on. Like it's, there's, there's going to be a lot of people that feel that, you know, finding a new occupation at home to keep themselves occupied probably isn't a, a priority because there's such like this huge other stress over here that might be sort of preoccupying everything that they're thinking about. Like, how am I going to survive? How am I going to pay rent? How am I going to even buy this food that I don't currently have? Can't buy toilet paper, so don't worry about that. But yeah, I think there's a... It, most things there's going to be a spectrum of some people are going to adjust to this quite easily some people are going to really have a difficult time i've been thinking a lot i'm not a parent but i've been thinking about the parents that i work with of just the implications of having children at home and then um if you are having to work your kids are at home and uh one of my friends was saying now i'm having to hire babysitters and so so much for social distancing because now i have babysitters that are coming into the home um and so i just so many barriers that we're all facing um, that make it really challenging to be able to, to do our occupations. Um, would it, I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about what um, is happening in the different areas of OT to kind of see how it's affecting um, people in different areas. I, I know, was, Sarah, you had a lot of people too <laughs> that t- reached out to you. Yeah, yeah. And in, in kind of reflecting about us being at our homes, if we, if we, think about that differently and think about the people that can't be home. So talking about people that are in a skilled nursing facility, a long-term care facility, uh, any sort of place where they, that's their home now, depending on how long they've been there, they might not be able to be home or even go home. And now they're locked, at least some of the therapists that I've talked to, their clients are they're supposed to stay in their room. They're not allowed out. They can't go into the community places like uh, where, where they would eat or any of like those kind of community lounge areas. And some of these people may or may not have the technological access to their friends and their family. And now no longer can their friends and family come see them. And that, even though I don't work in that realm, hearing the stories of my friends that, that work with these clients that for me has been really heartbreaking because so much has changed and now they are even more isolated from the rest of the world. And how do you kind of keep morale up? How do you keep them wanting to live? I have heard from friends of mine that they have clients that say, I'd rather die right now. How do you go into a situation when the world is so chaotic and our own lives are so chaotic and you go in and somebody's like, yeah, I'd rather die. Like, I get like I literally just have chills saying that because that is so incredibly hard to hear. And they may not have the access to technology or understand it. I think that that is another challenge. Um, that's one of the things I've been hearing is that um, therapists are actually one some occupational therapists are teaching the elderly how to use technology, how to FaceTime and do all that kind of stuff. And I just, I feel like that's a really beautiful way to try to help that population because it, it's tough. They may not have that opportunity or understanding of how to connect. So, 
I agree. I think that all of our um, groups of people who experience marginalizing conditions, whether they're the elderly living in a long-term care facility or um, it was brought to my attention, I have a colleague that her program of research is around homelessness and addiction and re-homing. And I thought a really interesting discussion was around sort of groups of people who are homeless and, and how this is affecting them and how their safety is at risk. Individuals who are challenged every day uh, with substance abuse and use and what that looks like for that population of people. Um, children who are at risk in terms of being in unsafe homes uh, and having a school or other safety spaces not necessarily available to them anymore and that could do to any form of abuse but also food insecurity um, around that as well as even thinking about now there's been some states of emergency and some funding thankfully but has been infused hopefully well um, that the government will do into our First Nations uh, communities Indigenous communities who individuals already struggle with accessing good quality care um, and being connected with others that might be um, under some really challenging circumstances due to the virus and, and lack of resources. I think that that's a really interesting point that Brock brought up. And, and I am in that same position. I'm very lucky. I've got lots of things to keep me busy here. My job affords me to stay home. My husband's a high school teacher. He's home. We've got two children, 10 and 7, who we don't have to seek childcare for. I have plenty of resources. Um, our finances are fine. But I do struggle to think about those who don't have those affordances that, like we do, um, don't have those resources at their disposal. Um, and staying home is really hard, is a, is a really hard ask. It's beyond maybe what they can do at this particular time. So we might have to think about other strategies to help manage that, I think, um, as OTs. I think one of, the, one of the populations in Australia as well is the Indigenous communities who are living on land. Mm-hmm. Um, they're part of a lot, well, part of the restrictions and they're apparently going into more detail about it tomorrow about what they're going to do uh, but they're limiting essentially tra- traffic into and out of uh, traditional communities. Uh, the border between my state and the Northern Territory, along that border there's a lot of uh, Indigenous Australians live along there. Uh, they've closed the border uh, to road traffic so that you know, there can't be any sort of people bringing the virus into those communities. One of the reasons that they bring that up is, like we were talking about earlier, Indigenous Australians are often a more community-centred culture uh, as opposed to the Western culture. And one of the things, that they, they often live in really close proximity within the houses. Not uncommon for 10 to 12 people to live in the same house. Um, but the worry is that if the virus does make it to those communities, spread really quickly. Uh, the other yeah. worry is that there's a lot of uh, there's a there's a large gap between indigenous health outcomes and uh, westernised health outcomes in Australia. So there's a lot of uh, health conditions that are really common within those communities that would put them at really high risk with COVID. So 
that's that's a population that from a federal level they're trying to look at how they can support and essentially help uh these these whole communities uh of, of indigenous australians from i guess the an ot who's partially myself working in school health support services being contextually bound to a rural area i don't work in a large city center. Um, so my positionality of how I work clinically is really based around rural care and, and support services. But um, thinking about how that impacts how we deliver care is, is an interesting one because our job is primarily to go into the schools to provide services for children, families, and teachers. Uh, our current evidence model that we practice from is the partnering for change model, which came out of McMaster university, which is focused really around supporting universal design for learning. Um, an interesting point though, is how do we provide universal design for learning when we're not necessarily in contact with teachers and families could be virtually, but also we are in a very difficult position around bargaining for our education right now and our teachers contracts which the um, Catholic schools have um, settled on a contract I believe the elementary teachers have just sort of decided on a contract but our secondary school teachers are still out in negotiations so we sit in an interesting place where we want to provide virtual resources and supports yet at the same time how do you do that in a way that isn't going to add tension to an already um, difficult position for our teachers that aren't really supposed to be doing anything to support their students learning, even if they were in school. I mean, student learning, I shouldn't say that they obviously support student learning, but they have very strong um, boundaries placed upon them and their hands are tied based on their unions around what they can and can't do uh, outside of the classroom, we'll say. So we are technically outside of the classroom mm. so what does that look like for us in our role as OTs so um, I send resources to teachers when I can and they can use them to then put on their apps to send to parents as other resources but when is doing too much too much and then also how do the teachers sit because ethically, they want to provide as many services and resources as they can for their little people, but at the same time are bound by the government's refusal to offer them a sound, fair contract to support their students in the classroom. So it's a weird um, position to be in as an OT or sort of this intermediary between these two places. I think there's a lot of renegotiations around the space that OTs, in, well, in particular, because that's what I've been paying attention to, uh, can move into at the moment. Because I know, Sarah, you mentioned earlier about uh, telehealth opening up. Is that just in your area or is that a statewide thing? Or uh, I don't know. I feel like it's statewide, but I don't actually think that other organizations have rolled it out. So I hesitate in saying that it is because I'm like, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I know two places that are both local to me have rolled it out. But 
all the organizations, even though we tend to be kind of in a similar realm, we all operate independently. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to tell if they've actually taken the advice from the overall service and applied it or if they're kind of doing their own thing. So I can only kind of talk to where, where we are. And like I said, kind of at the beginning, teletherapy was never even like, it wasn't even like on the table. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, go. And here we are trying to figure out, well, what does that even look like? How do we, how do we access it? How do we get our clients to access it? How do we help them through all of this? So it's not just, yeah, like go do it. It's like, there's all these other kind of contextual things, environmental things that we have to figure out for us and for our clients to actually be able to roll out teletherapy. Cause was it, was it, do you know, was there ever a reason why it wasn't rolled out? Cause it's also not here. I'm just curious as to the reasons why. So was there a reason why, or just, they just hadn't caught up with technology or. Cause I suspect that's probably the reason why it's not here, but yeah. I I would vouch. I think that it's probably that it just hadn't caught up yet. And they, the, when I say they, I, the, the organizations, kind of the governing powers haven't thought or haven't considered, or maybe they have considered, they just hadn't got to it yet. The benefit of being able to do this traditionally, when we are working with clients, it's one-on-one, it's face-to-face, we're in their homes. And all of a sudden, when you say you don't have to be in their home, you don't have to be one-on-one, you don't actually have to be on at the same time, you could do it in an asynchronous format where the therapist records something, sends it to the family, and then they watch it in their own time. I mean, that's just like ruffling all of those kind of boundaries that we thought we had, those rules that we thought we had. So I think it's just that it hadn't caught up with kind of where we are societally right now. Because I know with Australia, we got got a notification this, what's today? It's the weekend, last week. Um, that, because it's never been on like a service that OTs have been involved in to be able to claim through public health. We have a public health service uh, and there's rapid negotiations going on right now for not just OT, but for other professions, for telehealth, for these different professions to be added to Medicare so that OTs can move into that and start using it and you know, being paid for their services while they're doing it, et cetera. Um, and like that's a big win for OT Australia was even getting essentially OT a seat at that table to have the negotiation. So fingers crossed in the next week or so, we actually hear the outcome of that and OTs within Australia because we have national registration, OTs all over Australia should be able to uh, engage in telehealth to you know continue their practice and that kind of thing because at the moment we're headed towards similar restrictions I think that you guys are probably already at uh, we're not too far behind and that is going to impact a lot of uh, I would say a lot of private practices especially I was going to ask you Sarah so have you done telehealth then I, I think um what we've been talking about an outpatient is the challenges of we are usually like touching and handling and like any NDT or that kind of really specialty um, hands-on that we want to be able to show parents how to do safely. I feel like that's kind of an area where we're feeling a lot of challenge of like, how do we do that? Um, 
because, and how can you, like some things you can't, uh, you need to feel, you know what I mean? Instead of just being able to see. And so what I'm just like in my head, I'm like, what does early intervention look like in telehealth as the child running around and you're trying to explain how to, you know, position them and things like that. So yeah, I'm curious. So I haven't done it yet. I am scheduled and it's totally up to the family. That's that's another boundary, kind of as a side note, is that the parents have to agree. The families have to agree to teletherapy. So they could easily just be like, nope, and cancel completely. And then there are no services in place. But if they do agree to it, I am scheduled to do an intake, an initial evaluation on a little kiddo. And I believe they're under six months of age. And that's going to be my first time, like not even treatment. This is just doing an initial evaluation on a kiddo that I've never met before. But what I will say is some of the therapists that I work alongside with, they have been doing a couple teletherapy sessions so far. And the other day we all met virtually just to kind of discuss some of the challenges, but then also some of these benefits that we might not have been able to see without kind of being into this area, which is great. And uh, I know some of the therapists were actually talking about using dolls or using some sort of like stuffed animal uh, to mimic what the, the what the child would look like to be able to show positioning, to be able to show some facilitation of these movement patterns. So it is definitely a challenge. It's a barrier. And I think we as OTs, we have that lens that we can look at everything and be like, okay, this isn't how we typically operate. Yes, we tend to be hands-on, but how else can we communicate our our message? How else can we show what it is that we're doing and then ensure that communication and that understanding from parents and from the caregivers. So Mm -hmm. it's, I don't think it's going to be easy. I think it's going to be a complete learning opportunity for all of us. Mm -hmm. And kind of going back to that community piece, I think for anybody that is moving into teletherapy, or even if you've been in it, this is the time that we all have to come together and talk about what's working, what's not working and helping each other through it. If you've never done it before, if you have done it, we can learn from each other and figure out the best way that we can implement this across the board and in lots of different practice areas. I think a benefit that just came to mind, as you said, that is that an outpatient, I feel like, you know, that we always have the parents participate in the session with us, but um, I think there is this sense of like, we're there to fix their child, um, which Obviously, we are a part of their care, but really the parents are also a part of that care. And so how do we help them to be able to continue at home? So home programming is really a big piece of what we teach them. But when you're doing telehealth, it's almost like, I don't know, in my mind, they might feel more of that, like, this is my role now. I'm having to learn this. I'm having to demonstrate it because somebody's not here to hold my hand. Um, And I hadn't thought of that until you said that, Sarah, that maybe it would, in a sense, help to empower some parents. Yeah. And, and specifically to like, for me, I'm going into the home, so I'm already there. But if we think about a lot of the practice areas that are happening within a clinical setting in outpatient pediatrics, if they're coming to a clinic, you're not going into their home. You're not getting to see what it is like in the home. So all of a sudden, yes, there is a barrier of teletherapy but it's actually eliminating some of the other barriers 
for people, for the therapist being able to work with the families in their natural environment, in their homes, in in some of those community places that they might be able to still be going to at this moment. And so I think, yes, it's a challenge, but it's also opening up a lot of possibility for us as occupational therapists. Good way of looking at it, actually. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great point. Yeah. So is it, is it one of those things you think – uh, one of the things I ha- I'm not sure of with the negotiation that's happening in Australia is whether or not they're looking at this to be a permanent change or just a temporary one for you know the next six months, a year, however long this thing takes to play out. Uh, I've I'm a tech geek. I've always gone, why isn't this? Why can't we do this? This makes sense. And I I had heard arguments um, from people in the states previously. Uh, mainly about your state registration in that if you are working with someone online in a different state, technically that's not legal. Uh, But you guys, even now, there's some form of national registration or it's coming or something, isn't there? It's in talks. As far as I know, it's in considerations. I haven't heard any word about it actually happening, but that they are trying to consider this because of the possibility and the benefits that telehealth and teletherapy can offer. What's what's the state of telehealth in Canada, Jesse? Is it, do you guys have state registration or or what have you guys? Yeah, we have provincial registration. So same, same idea. Um, So I'm registered with the college for Ontario. Mm -hmm. Uh, Telehealth and telemedicine, um, is frequently used, particularly in our northern communities, um, around access of services. I was talking with an OT not too long ago that works sort of in northern Ontario, and many services are delivered from the GTA or Toronto, um, general Toronto sort of area, via telehealth and telemedicine to Indigenous communities in the north. Uh, points of access, because just like Australia, we have large geographical areas that are underserved and we have populations that require it there. I was talking with a few OTs recently, actually probably about two months ago, and we were sharing our frustrations around not having much direction from our colleges in how we deliver telehealth and telemedicine as occupational therapists. Probably one of the big reasons is uh, in Canada, we don't have, I'm going to say this generally, although not knowing province to province, we don't have a real large private practice sector. So we're going to probably move into that space, especially in Ontario, where our sort of conservative government is cutting and Um, lots of services in the healthcare sector. There has been more private practices that are emerging, but some of the telehealth, telemedicine in private practice might sort of take off. Our larger children's treatment centers, I believe, do use it um, for rounds discussions as well as for other services. Um, But it's still new and there's sort of generalized directives from our college, but not some really, like as Sarah said, some specific how to some real conversations about what works, what doesn't work, you know, confidentiality, um, session structures, what that looks like when trying to give directives uh, virtually how that process unfolds in a more pragmatic sense. So I feel like it will pick up 
um, which is a good thing, I think, and maybe increase our reach uh, and the quality of services we can deliver via telehealth. But we're probably in that same position of sort of its infancy in terms of more people using it regularly and feeling confident about their services. Yeah, it's, I wonder, because it seems to be, I mean, I've, obviously through Occupied, I've talked to people all over the world and that whenever that topic comes up, everyone seems to be in the same boat. They're either not using it, not allowed to use it, or just trying to learn how to use it. I wonder if there's anyone, even another profession, there's got to be someone. It's obviously a thing. Where is it? A th- where can we actually learn this from? Uh, and I, th- I do think that that, especially at the moment, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised in Australia anyway if we do get some guidance around that from OTA because they seem to be uh, really on top of this, which is awesome. Um, and I'll bring it up in a, in a bit, but they've published a really cool little ebook, um, and I found another one that I'll also bring up, which probably might be very much up Michelle's alley with the mindfulness stuff. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I haven't, I don't know who, like I've, I've heard of telehealth for years, but I don't know who's doing it well. Mm-hmm. Actually, Brock, I always reflect on um, when I worked at JCU at the, at the clinic, there was a private speech services that was, that was there. And I can't remember off the top of my head what the name was, but I always marveled at the way in which they delivered telehealth and teleservices. Um, so we were looking at building maybe a connection through the pediatric OT clinic and the speeches and figuring out a way that we could work together um, mm. for research and for service delivery. And I thought they did a beautiful model where uh, they worked with families that were sort of in rural communities throughout Australia, who their children had um, speech challenges, whatever that was, in whatever capacity. Um, They started off by sending, um, let's say, treatment visit schedules, you know, like your treatment plan, what you would do, the materials you would need, the timing for activities, and they would email that through to parents. Mm -hmm. They would have a Zoom or a Skype or whatever platform that they were using, where they would coach the parents through doing that session. Eventually, what would happen was the parents developing sort of confidence and capabilities would start to design an aspect of that intervention plan, let's say. So they would send that through to the therapist. The therapist would provide some critical feedback and some direction. They would then enact that in the session. And of course we'd use our enabling skill of coaching and we'd move through that process and, you know, work with that sort of giving feedback, maybe next time try this, or have you ever thought about this? To the point where eventually what would happen was the parent would be running 90 to 100% of that session. OT, or in this case, it was the speechy, would be there to coach them through that. They would have a set schedule for, let's say, six weeks of telehealth, and then they would come together they would fly into the center. So they'd come to JCU to that clinic and they provide, let's say three or four days of intensive direct service. So the parents would connect for family support. The therapist would then be able to see the child for reassessment for more hands-on learning activities and supports. And then once that block was done, they would fly back out to their respective locations and then the process would continue. Um, But I always thought, 
I mean, I'm sure that there's lots of logistical things with that, but I thought what an interesting way to deliver hmm. services. And they were really effective. Like they had lots of really positive outcomes from that model, but I thought it had this beautiful blend of group, individual, telehealth, all of these sort of factors um, that I believe current research from what I know, which is minimal in terms of this space, is saying telehealth is great. However, the pragmatics of how it's delivered and the feasibility of that is really important. So there's lots of barriers, but lots of really wonderful things. But it can't be the sole thing that's provided, sort of going back to Michelle's idea of the feeling and the hands-on experience of that intervention. Uh, having this beautiful blend of the two, which is interesting. Blended learning approach to therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what we do, I guess, in education, which is an interesting space for us right now for the virtual classroom. So So I, I have a question for you two that are in academia, thinking about this from the student perspective and from your perspective, moving into a virtual learning space, do you guys feel like your students are being supported through this and kind of helping them cope with everything that's going on? Because we've been talking a lot about our clients. We've been talking a lot about us as, as therapists and how it's changed, changed our roles. But let's think about the students for a second. I know students that were within a week or two of finishing their last fieldwork or one of their fieldworks, and now that's been canceled and their next one's in jeopardy. Uh, graduation might be postponed. Like, Can you guys talk a little bit about how you feel like you are supporting your students, how you're like that student experience and really kind of what's going on from that area? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go first? You want to go, bro? Sure. I'll go. go. It's okay. Um, Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think in the lead up to so we're we're now having our our pause week our break week this week so there's no student or they might be on campus if they want to use the library or something but there's no teaching there's no classes this week but in the lead up to this i think uh, globally there was a lack of information about what was going on and i think that for a lot of them was scary uh there's things happening we don't have a lot of information about it you know, what's going to happen to class? Like, I don't know. Like, we are being directed by the powers that be at the university. I can't give you any more information because I don't know any. Uh, and literally, we get a notification from uh, as staff and five, ten minutes later, the students would get there. So, like, I was literally only really knew the information. Like, they knew what I knew, essentially. Um, on terms of now, we have a little bit more information. Now we're starting to actually plan for the online delivery. Uh the the biggest concern is again probably similar to uh your client work is there's some stuff that require well usually would require some hands on uh teaching demonstration that kind of stuff uh we had lots of we had guest lecturers and stuff in the subject that I'm teaching at the moment uh, it's going to be very interesting because I'm teaching communication and we've just had mm-hmm. like four of the different types taken away from us and we're all online now. So it, that's that's going to be an interesting challenge and that is uh, my headache for this week is trying to work out how to do that. Um, for the most part, I think other subjects, like we're essentially being told to prep till the end of the year just in case uh, for online learning. Um, I think my the other subject that I'm taking in the second half of the year much easier because a lot of it is um, 
concepts and models and that kind of stuff. And I think it's it's a lot easier to get that stuff because it's you know traditional learning. It's lectures, workshops where there's some demonstrations, but that's the the stuff that we're learning in that particular class, which is a lot of mental health content. Uh, aside from a couple of things, I can probably do online now. There's not a lot of adjustment needed, whereas communication, it's kind of hard to teach people. I mean, I can I can give them the theory about you know nonverbal communication and encourages and you know the different models for setting up a room and body language and all of that kind of stuff, but there was one activity that we were talking about was uh, proximity and personal space. And one of the activities we get them to do is literally stand this close together and just feel how uncomfortable it is. You can't do that on Zoom. Like I can get right up close to the camera, but it's not going to have the same effect. It probably exactly. People just laugh at me. You'll get a ticket in California, right? You'll get a ticket for doing that. Probably. (laughs) Right now. You're too close. Too close. I need my what is it? Four square meters or whatever it is. But uh, so it's it's a matter of like, okay, well, how can I t- get teach that concept to someone who's like, yes, if they got other family members, sure, you can try. Here's an exercise. You can try it with someone else in the house. There's gonna be people that don't. The other thing is the subject that I'm teaching is across two campuses. The other campus has a lot of international students. They've all been sent home. So I'm mm. gonna have online workshops with students that are up in the middle of the night you know they might be in asia somewhere they might be in india or or anywhere really um so it's it's another thing to try and juggle like how do we manage that um we're one of the things i'm hoping to put in is obviously when you have a face-to-face workshop, well, not obviously, but when you have a face-to-face workshop, it's quite quite common for students to come up at sort of at the end of the class. They've got questions about the assignment. They've got questions about some of the content, and they can get that, uh, I guess, straightened out then and there nice and easily in person with you. Um, that, I think, becomes a little bit more difficult in an online space because quite often, in my experience, a lot of them wait till the end because they have this sort of, they fear that, you know, the question's silly or, um, you know, they they don't want to ask it in public. One of the things I'm hoping to do is essentially put more support in. Like I'm going to have, hopefully, <laughs> the time. So have just an open Zoom session or something, or we're using a slightly different program to Zoom, but an open online thing where, you know, I'm here, I'm going to be here for three hours. Pop in whenever you want. If you've got questions, if you want me to walk you through what we've learned to that this week, if you want some better explanations or more explanations about the content, you want to run something by me about your assignment, whatever it is, I think just making myself more available will help because, again, I can't put anything really concrete into place because I don't know what the issues are going to be yet. So I'm at this stage trying to make it broad and put in some broad supports. Uh, and I might find that, uh, you know, this particular type of activity just isn't isn't hitting the mark. Uh, but it's going to be something that I'm going to have to learn as we go. Because again, I've never taught an online course. I've never done an online course. Uh, well, I'm doing one now, but I haven't done one before as a student. Um, so I think well, the one benefit I've got is I'm quite tech savvy. And 
I like to be creative in that space as well. So I'm hoping that I can kind of utilize that to create a space where students um, feel like they're still able to get as much out of it as they might or as close to as, as much out of it as they might with the in-person classes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we'll tell. <laughs> There's yeah. no certainty at the moment. I think I think all those points are really are really valid, um, Brock. I guess one of the big points of clarification that we've made to our students, um, especially around the transparency and communication, is is that this is not an online course. Mm. Um, this is classes that are being placed online to the best of our capacity to meet your learning needs in the best way we can. Because if it was an online course, we would have had the time and developed the pedagogy from the very beginning to support their learning to the best of the capacity. So it can't be evaluated like an online course because it's not, it's, it's not that it's not to that extent. Um, We have great supports from the teaching center for teaching and learning who immediately created podcasts, Zoom meetings, drop-in sessions to help support this transition for us as uh, academics to support our students' learning. Everything from practical, how do you create groups on OWL, which is our platform, to create open discussions? How can we move to using these tools that we have to the best of our Um, capabilities. I think the real challenge and barrier comes that I am the opposite of Brock. I am not tech savvy. And (laughs) I have a very very short attention span. So I am literally the worst online learner, probably. (laughs) So I use that as a superpower to think, if I'm the worst case scenario here, Mm -hmm. how can I support my students learning to the best of my ability. And I think we have to be transparent with our students as they are with us to appeal to their humanity, so to speak, to say, we're in this together. Uh, We will do our best, but we are also human beings. We have families, we have commitments. We know the content, but the platform in which we are delivering it somewhat new to us as well. So there might be some hiccups and some glitches and things aren't going to work perfectly, but we'll work through this together. Um, So I think that that transparency is really important. Our faculty has been great. Um, Our leaders and our faculty, our discipline sort of head and and, um, all of those sort of upper administration have been great by bringing forward a consolidated approach to talk to our students about what's happening, why it's happening and how they can think about navigating the space going forward. So they're not getting these sort of partial mixed messages from me and another professor and someone else that it's this we're unified approach. So that has come through um, centralized emails the development of tables and schedules for these are the courses, this is how they will be delivered, this is what to expect. So instead of adding more for us to do, they've sort of centralized that process, which I think is really beneficial for students because they don't have to think, what's Jesse going to do? You know, what's Dr. Alvarez going to do? Who's going to do this and stuff? It's all centrally managed. Um, which I think is important for two reasons. One, to clarify that, but also two, um, that we are a unified team, which is important for students to, to realize is one person 
isn't better or worse than the other. We're all in this together, which I think is, is really important. Um, I also, it's some practical things because I'm in that space now and I'm the worst student for online learning. So how, how I'm doing it, because some of the methods I teach pediatrics and I'm teaching an intensive right now. So that sort of students that have a particularly relevant interest in pediatrics, we do lots of hands-on activities with kids, um, including my own. So ways I'm getting around that is the case studies we might've worked through. I'm posting like literally as much detail, example, case studies with guiding questions and workbooks, recording videos of me interviewing my kids and posting them online. So instead of the student doing the interview, I'm doing the interview and I'm purposely making some mistakes or errors so they can identify what I could have done better or what could have happened if I asked a different question or if I did a different approach. Uh, Other things I'm doing is linking groups and discussion forums. So each group can have the opportunity to discuss a case study. And I I present very structured guidelines of what questions to ask, what should the discussion entail, what time frame do they have? So is it a week that they have to respond versus three days? I think that as we move to online learning, we're already nervous about navigating the forum or the platform that we might need to be particularly structured around how to use that platform and what's expected as our outcomes. And we probably should be as educators very clear in that anyways of what the learning outcomes are for each one of our classes. But sometimes that's hard, that's easier to get away with when you're face to face and you can have more of a dynamic discussion. Right. I think that the Zoom and the other platforms for in-person workshops would be wonderful. However, we've been told as a directive from our university, the mass quantity of people who are going to be using that platform will cause difficulties and glitches. We've been told so we may have to look at more of a blend between asynchronous and synchronous delivery, which is fine. Um, but it just poses another one of those sort of challenges on the time. For that, especially because our first year class is, I think, 72 students. So 72 students all logging on to an online platform and trying to negotiate a group conversation, even with breakout rooms, is a challenge, I think. So um, the other one that Brock, I'll just mention quickly, is the guest lectures. So my guest lectures have been absolutely stellar with being flexible, especially while balancing their own role and the outbreak and the, you know, additional obligations that they face. But one of my concerns was that I didn't want to add anything more for them to do. So they, I don't want them to have to learn a new piece of technology. I don't want them to have to read a 10 page document on how to create voiceover PowerPoint slides because they just don't have the time um, to do that. So the teaching and learning center were just great. And a lot of those ones were my, I can't do the real time face to face with the group have scheduled zoom meetings where I'm recording and I'm sort of breaking those up just like we are here today 
posing questions, creating discussion points, any case studies that they have, I'm posting ahead of time with clear directives for the students and dividing them up into groups. And then the questions that are generated from those discussions will re-record either another lecture, like another sort of discussion lecture via Zoom with me and the guest lecture, or they'll create a written response to help answer some of the students' questions or bring clarification to the content. So those are some of the practical things that I'm trying. Again, it's all sort of new and we'll see what that looks like. Yeah, I think with the guest, like one of the, we have a, a young gentleman who, has cerebral palsy used to come in and do a guest lecture around communicating with someone with a disability. So again, tech at his house was going to be an issue. So we went out uh, last week and recorded uh, an interview with him. We like, we interviewed him and recorded it. We now have that video as a resource for future use, but it's more than likely going to make up that component all that week component around uh you know communicating with someone with a disability um so yeah, i i agree there's going to be a lot i'm i'm helping some of our staff do some recordings on tuesday uh that they have to do for very similar reasons because we're not going to have the ability to or they're not going to have the ability to in person demonstrate the i think they're doing a, some kind of assessment so we're videoing it so that the students can watch and they're going to break that video up and then, you know, turn it into an online uh, learning opportunity for them to do it in stages and, you know, answer questions, et cetera, in between. So there's, there's a lot of AV involved, which is sweet. That's right up my alley. But uh, I know that alone is a barrier for a lot of stuff. So mm -hmm. I can't imagine it would be much different uh for the students as well there's going to be students that take to it like a duck in water and there's going to be students that are like how do i turn it on i don't know yeah i think that's an interesting point and i'd be curious because i think one of the strengths that we're building on for most of the students that i teach because i'm old so i always think that they're much more <laughs> much more tech savvy than i am and they are you know they're incredible if i'm having a difficult time loading up this thing they're right there and, and able to help However, I am curious because many students in the past have said to me, you know, I wish that you would record your lectures. And, and I have moved to more of a blended learning where I record the didactic teaching and then I devote mainly the class time to labs and, and practical opportunities. I've tried to do that more and more over the years. But the real question comes is that we think we are really good at online learning, especially if we are tech savvy. You know, and we, we do use social media frequently and that comes as sort of a second nature to us. But I'd be curious about getting a really honest, critical reflection from students mm. about where their preconceived notions of learning online actually meet what they thought it was going to be after the fact. And what was the what were the good things? What were the things that worked well and supported your learning? But what were the things that you assumed were going to be easy? and meet your current lifestyle actually didn't didn't support your learning and wish that yeah maybe there were more opportunities for x y and z because i think that um we all think we do something well you know but hindsight's always 2020 and we realize that there are things that not only us as educators but them as students could do differently to facilitate that engagement better 
And I think I think what you'll end up with after the this whole process is you get that feedback and you might find bits and pieces that you can then incorporate back into your regular teaching to make that even better. And whether that is recorded lectures or whatever. But the other thing I was just thinking then is the same process can be done with clients, especially if you're starting to roll out telehealth, getting their feedback on like, okay, this bit's really hard to understand. Well, on the video, is there another way we can do it? Or you know, even just from a tech point of view, like I can't hear you, <laughs> like your audio sucks or it would be better. Like for some people it might be over the phone. Like I can't, it's hard for you like when you're describing whatever it is, I can't I'll get my head around it. So getting that feedback, I think from students, uh, from students, from clients as you're learning to use telehealth, I think would be a, a huge, uh, very important uh, piece of the puzzle. I think it's funny because as you guys were just talking, I kept reflecting on it from a client practitioner mm. lens. And I'm like, everything you're saying about the tech part and the interaction or the lack of interaction, that's what we're going to be dealing with as practitioners with our clients as well. And some of the practitioners that I work with are very tech savvy and some of them are not. And seeing how the ones that aren't are actually taking on this new role of learning technology and then having to help their clients access it too. That's just another kind of barrier, another hurdle, I guess, that they have to overcome. And it's, it's just, it's such an interesting thing. And I think there's so many things to consider and I don't even know, like we haven't even touched on all of them and we've touched on so many this time or this, this recording, but going back to that transparency and that unity piece, I think that is like the most important thing right now is really just trying to come together, be open and honest about, Hey, we're trying this. We don't know how it's going to work. This is new for me. Uh, This is new for you guys, regardless if you're a student, you're a professor, you're a client, you're a therapist, wherever, whatever lens, whatever area you're coming from, but really having that transparency to say, we're going to work through this together. If there are things we don't like, we will adjust it. If things don't go exactly how we want, we'll adjust it. And like, honestly, as I'm saying that, I'm like, this is just, this is so OT. Like, this is exactly <laughs> what we do is figuring out the limitations and then moving forward and making progress despite whatever else is going on. So yeah, very interesting. And I think Michelle might even be able to speak to this with your background in, in mindfulness is I know, um, being reflective about the type of person I am, I'm, I'm not as structured as what I should be as I showed you all my office, which is a bit of a chaotic space before this podcast started. (laughs) Um, I very much thrive on human interaction, as Brock said, even beyond the lecture. So many students come up after class and ask questions or will drop in. I have an open door policy where they can come and see me at any point in time if they have any questions or concerns. And sometimes that fluidity of conversation has really positive outcomes, you know, and same thing from a clinical standpoint, I can spend an entire three hours talking with one resource teacher, you know, which is obviously you can't bill for in terms of physical health services, which is an issue. But I I take that hit because I feel that those conversations are important. But when we think about adding structure to this space where we're navigating sort of an online environment, we also have to be particularly mindful around our own 
sense of health and well-being, I think, in that space as OT clinicians and academics, because we can invest so much time mm-hmm. into these extra drop-in spaces, these unscheduled Skype calls, these um, supporting our other colleagues and wanting to do this really well and effectively while also maybe balancing our own health and, and well-being and realizing that we can't do this perfectly, um, but we have to start somewhere. And how can we do that in a way that's going to offer really good quality services or educational opportunities while being respectful of our, our own mental health, I guess, and, and well-being. Um, oh, exactly. I think something that keeps coming back to my mind is you guys remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like the pyramid. And it's like a lot of us, that's kind of what's being shaken up is just like our stability, our safety. Um, I mean, we, ha- we, in addition to everything, had an earthquake in Utah um, on Wednesday. And that really, I think, put a lot of us over the edge. It's like all of that is kind of um, being disrupted. And, you know, something that I think that I've been really trying to be patient with myself as well is I think I totally agree of like um, having healthy expectations of ourselves as well. Because I think that like, you know, during this quarantine quarantine period and I'm home, I'm thinking, oh, I should do this. I should do that. I should learn something new. I should do all of these things. And I think part of this process is really just also having presence and kind of slowing down and um, being patient with yourself. So I think um, community is going to be really important for us right now, but also um, I think noticing for me, I, I kind of notice my thoughts and I label them. So it's like, you know, we all want this sense of control of like, I need to be, um, I need to go grocery shopping. I need to do this. And so I'll kind of label it like, oh, hello, control. You're trying to have control in a situation where we don't really have control. Um, or, oh, this is me kind of, um, disengaging, like I'm totally trying to numb out what's happening. And so I think the more that we can be aware of those different patterns of like, oh, control is showing up. Oh, fear is showing up. Oh, um, isolation is showing up in my life. I think the more that we can be aware of that, then, um, then we can actually feel what's happening instead of, um, trying to cope in, in ways that aren't healthy, if that makes sense. So, Um, that's what I think has really been speaking to me of like, sometimes I don't have to be doing anything. We're as occupational therapists. I think we always think we have to be doing something or like have an occupation. And I think part of the experience right now is allowing ourselves to be. And so I think that as a student, that will be really interesting to see how that shows up. You know, they have expectations of themselves of wanting to do really well and succeed, but their, their hierarchy of needs is totally changing. You know, maybe their biggest thing that they're working towards was graduating and now it's kind of like survival and having enough food. And so showing grace to themselves that they're, what they're doing is enough. And then on the end of the teachers, like, 
we've never done this kind of a course before. What we're doing is enough. I mean, and Sarah and I were like messaging yesterday, you know, not to call both of us out, but at like <laughs> noon, we... <laughs> At noon, we were like eating breakfast and I will just, I will admit I was in my pajamas, you know, and there's this sense of like, I should be doing more. I should be up and I should be doing all these things. Um, and whatever you're doing is enough. I think showing ourselves grace. So I think just kind of a long way to answer that, but yeah, (laughs) just, just to piggyback on that, uh, Michelle had said, oh, Sarah, you seem so organized. I wish I was like on top of, I forget what the language was, but like, I wish I was as structured as you were. And I flat out was like, if you think I am doing it, like, uh, uh-uh. I like, no, like I'm eating breakfast at the same time. I <laughs> feel like I should be doing all these things. I'm watching all these other people that are like putting out content and they're writing blogs and they're building courses and they're doing all this fantastic stuff. And I'm like, I don't like, I got asked yesterday, like, well, what did you do this morning? And I'm like, I can't even remember what I did. Like, I really think I was, I was trying to be mindful and trying to be present in the moment, but I was so thinking about everything else that was going on in my head that like hours passed by and I don't even know what happened to them. And so really being aware of who we are, who you are as a person, how you operate and giving yourself grace during this time because it is so completely chaotic, uncertain, anxious, nerve-wracking, like whatever the the term is that you're feeling right now, it's okay to just be and not always have to be doing something or being engaged in something, but it's okay to just kind of be and try to figure out what it is that is going to be the best thing for you kind of moving forward. I think what you what, what you brought up before, Michelle, I there's a free ebook that's just been put out by Russ Harris. Many people will know Russ Harris from uh, Happiness Trap and a few other books, Reality Slap. Um, but he's put out a, a free ebook, and I'll put the links in the show notes for this episode uh, called How to Respond Effectively to Coronavirus. And just listening to you talk, then you pretty much nailed it without even thinking. About it. I don't know if you've actually yes. read it yet, but you pretty much <laughs> nailed it. So it's his his sort of acronym is face COVID. Um, so the FACE is oh, cool. fo- focus on what's in your control. Uh, the A is acknowledge your thoughts and feelings. C is come back into your body, uh, and E is engage in what you, which is pretty much exactly what you said almost word for word before. Uh, and then <laughs> the COVID aspect of it is looking at committed action, opening up values. Uh, identifying resources, and then finally disinfect and distance. So I, I like the way he's laid it out because it's very much starts with the internal stuff. And I think a lot of, especially in the FACE stuff, especially around um, acknowledging your thoughts and feelings and focusing on what's in your control. Cause I think that from the conversations that I've had with people online and just the sheer volume of stuff that's being posted online a lot of people trying to process that volume of information is going to affect people's mental health. Even if they don't read into every single article, just the simple exposure to that much negative press, even though like most of it can't control it. Uh, just being aware of that is going to help people if they are starting to feel anxious, depressed, etc around you know everything that they're reading 
And I know one of the things that I, I'm sure you'd be an advocate of and I've, I've done it at times too is when you start to feel like that, switch your phone off. Disconnect mm. from it for a bit. Remove yourself yeah. from that situation. The world's still going to turn. I'm still going to come up whether you're on Facebook or not. <laughs> so look after mm. your own mental health. Put yourself first because then you're going to be able to you know, be more productive and you might be you might want to learn to play guitar after that or whatever it is that you want to do or whatever it is that you might have to do. You might have to do some work. I know working from home for a lot of people can be a struggle because all of the fun things are at home and there's lots of distractions um, or not so fun things, depending on if you've got noisy kids and they want to play the drums or whatever it is. But there there can be more distractions and you might need to get a bit of focus and discipline to, to actually get the things that you need to get done done. So, yeah, that was... That it was, I was, it was making me laugh a little as you were talking because I'm like, you pretty much summed this up and I don't even think you've read it. No, but yeah, I love that acronym. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. I think even for the students, I might send that their way, Brock, um, in terms of that link. I think it's really good for all of us to be mindful of. And I think particularly speaking from my wearing sort of my parent hat um, of having two kids, I posted something on Facebook the other day and I had this discussion with my husband and we caved and bought our kids an Xbox. And I was very anti-Xbox and gaming for a long time. Did you see that, Brock? So I had these really positive comments from friends and and family members saying, you know, you do the best you can during this time. And I read somewhere that we have to toss out our ideals around screen time because you got to get work done. You have to balance those sort of tensions, you know, and try to offer opportunities as much as possible, but also realize that you're doing the best you can. And thinking of that as a parent, but also as a pediatric OT, we say that to our parents all the time, are struggling to manage daily life under so many circumstances that what you are doing is enough. Um, There's no pressure on you to do this home program if you can't, you know, is there something else we can work within? Is there, you know, you are enough and you're, and you're doing enough yet for some reason, it's very hard for us as occupational therapists and academics to shine that light inward and say to us, yes, we, we are doing enough and that, you know, we're trying our best to navigate this space. And I think that message both for ourselves, but also for our families that we can send that way is, is particularly important. Um, Because as Brock said, I love the influx of all of these great apps and, you can go on these museum tours and these worksheets and this daily schedule that people are posting up. And um, that can also be a point of stress for mm-hmm. our families. Like now I have to overachieve. There's too many options. Yes. These areas. Exactly. Now I have to run the tight ship at home with all of these scheduled activities and worksheets. And am I doing enough? Am I, my child's not in school anymore. So now I have to homeschool them and, and do all this stuff. And it's added pressure. You know, it's added um, obligations and roles that we didn't have before as families um, to now on. So I actually, I asked my two kids this morning, what this virus, uh, what COVID-19 has done in both for them in areas that are good and bad in the things that they need to do, want to do, and are expected to do. So we got an Xbox. 
<laughs> well, part of the draw. Part of it. Um, so the good, the good ones, and this is both the seven and the nine-year-old, or excuse me, ten-year-old saying this is uh, uh, the one of the good things about this has that they they don't have to get up really early and go anywhere. We can stay together. Oh, so I thought great. this was interesting. The notion of staying together as a family and valuing mm-hmm. the family time, but also how our school day starts at 8.30 in the morning. And some kids get up significantly earlier than that if they're bussed in from other communities and stuff, is that we're expecting kids to adhere to a very strict routine in the morning. And we know that for high school kids, as they get older, morning routine is particularly challenging. It becomes so are an we afternoon asking, routine. <laughs> right. Are we asking our kids to to adhere to strict routines that, that maybe aren't as productive. Um, but good things is, is we're all safe. Uh, we play the Xbox, so I like the games, but they also can talk to their friends um, through Xbox, which these are all new things for me. I had no <laughs> idea that they could talk with their headsets. My son has Messenger now for kids. I had no idea that these sorts of things existed. So they're learning new skills. I think about this, that they are learning new skills, but they're staying connected in other ways. And he's playing with his sister, although they are quite close, but they are playing together this game. Yep. even though it's screen time, but I'm looking at the positives. Um, <laughs> the bad things is that, uh, which I thought was interesting because kids don't say they don't like routines as do university students. I feel like, which is interesting because many of them say I want to do online learning so it can fit into my own lifestyle and my routine, which I don't think is a bad thing, but my kids reflected and thought that unlike school, we don't have something to do all the time and then we don't know what to do and it can get boring so the structure and the routine is incredibly important however they don't think it is at times um <laughs> unless you're trying to make them do it and then all of a yeah, sudden it's an issue that, that they can't play hockey and soccer my kids are very active in sports and that they love to play and it gives us something to do and i like the people i play with And an important one my son brought up with hockey is he plays competitive hockey, ice hockey, and it was um, their finals. They had worked so hard to get to the finals and they were in the finals and then it got canceled. And from a hockey culture in a small town, we had put such emphasis on that. You work hard, you dedicate your time, you've made the team, you work to the finals. And when that all of a sudden doesn't exist anymore. It makes us reprioritize our values, doesn't it? Of Mm. what we are as a society. Is it as important anymore that you make this team and you succeed if it's so easily canceled? You know what I mean? Like, and the kids, they don't realize that, right? Like, and I don't think I did a great job as a mom helping him work through that. You know, we were more at that, well, we have to because we've been told to stay home versus working through those feelings of, I spent a lot of my time. I practice three days a week. I play all these hockey games and now all of a sudden it's over, um, which was interesting. And also that, you know, it's hard because we're restricted and we can't play with our friends in person, right? They're very, they play a lot with neighbors across the road and they're play down at the Creek and build forts and do that kind of stuff. And they can't do that anymore. They can look at each other across the yard and like wave, <laughs> But that physical... They're pictures up. They're a little coloring. 
So I thought that was interesting because some of the things that we talked about today were reiterated by people who sometimes we think are happy to sit and play on the Xbox, but I think there's different levels there of understanding that they bring forward. Um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, just a little funny thing that I, I just how kids are watching all the time and what they're picking up on. And you know, we had St. Patrick's Day just recently, obviously. And um, my nieces have the tradition. They try to catch a leprechaun and um, they had so they had a whole like box to catch the leprechaun. But the lep- they had a hand washing station for the leprechaun before he was caught. Oh my God. <laughs> because, you so- know. Even leprechauns are afraid of getting COVID. They don't want it, you know? So we're like, it's just interesting because um, we haven't, you know, said anything about that, about um, like how that would affect the leprechauns, you know? Are leprechauns and in the high-risk category? I'm not sure. They had a, yes, they, they had a hand wash. Potentially. Yeah. Depending so, on their age. Come on. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't actually catch them. So we're unclear if they wash their hands or what, but yep. And they didn't leave coins. And so then that was a whole nother thing because we didn't have to talk about coins for them um, because we couldn't find any. And so uh, we were like, how do you explain that to a child? Because they're (laughs) self-isolating. But we, yeah, Yeah. that's exactly what we said. We're like, they're social distancing and they didn't want to leave, you know, behind (laughs) coins that they had in their hands. We're just getting more creative at lying, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's just funny. I think the the thing that stands out to me as as we were just talking is kind of this ever-changing landscape that we're mm-hmm. dealing with across so many different areas. And the the screen time that I had not thought about this before, where all, we as for years now, we have been preaching decreased screen time specifically with kids, but adults and how the negative impact that it has on engagement and Uh, just all this stuff, right? We have been preaching this and all of a sudden our lifeline, like this is how we are able to connect with our friends and family. And I know like there's been some things on social media about unplugging and getting away. And if that's what you need for your mental health, then I get it. I totally understand. But when I saw that the other day, I got anxious because I was like, wait, you're like, you're saying unplug from technology. And I'm like, that's how I'm connecting. That's how I'm staying in touch with people. That's how I'm keeping myself sane during this. And so I think it's just interesting to discuss like how screen time used to be perceived as this awful thing, especially for our kids. And now all of a sudden, like for all of us, it is a very, very important thing to have in our lives right now to be able to connect with our friends, connect with our families, connect with our healthcare providers, like whatever it is that we need. And really just thinking about that change and, and the positive and ben- uh, positive and negative that are coming from that. But it really has been something that has always, I felt, has been kind of perceived in a negative light. And now I know for me, it's extremely important. And I feel like my screen time has doubled, tripled, quadrupled in the last couple of weeks. And so, yeah, just navigating that and understanding that is, I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss for words. It's like this new territory that I've never really thought about before. And I think you're right. Like my screen times, my screen time is probably pretty high normally, but it's probably going to be even higher soon. Um, 
I often get told that I don't seem to sleep. It is 2 a.m., so they're probably right. <laughs> oh, my uh, gosh. But I, I, I think, like, some people are going to have different tolerances. And, I, again, it depends what you're using it for. Like I said before, there's so much information on Facebook, it's almost overwhelming at the moment. Um, and I think screen time is one of those things where we can use that to give ourselves some structure in a, a time when, like, structures there's not a lot at the moment we're kind of making our own so like one of the things i think is important is not necessarily main you're not going to be able to maintain sort of the exact kind of day that you usually would have like with going to work but i know for me with working from home i'm gonna have to structure that kind of really strictly on myself otherwise it just won't happen so, like, it's going to have to be, like, you have to be in this office by whatever time and you will work until, you know, whenever, then you can have lunch and blah, blah, blah. Um, like, I, like I said at the start, like, I'm lucky in that I've got pretty much everything I need at home, so I'm going to be able to schedule in, like, okay, you can go to the gym, and by gym I mean into my shed where all my gym equipment is. Um, I think screen time is going to be one of those things that I can structure in, but I'm also for me and I know how I react to it. Downtime or disconnection from specifically social media, not necessarily screens for me, but disconnection from social media. I'm probably going to schedule that in because it's something that I know I need for mental health, especially when I know that my screen time overall is going to go up anyway. So I know that if I don't, like it'll start affecting my mood. It'll start annoying me in a lot of cases. And then I start uh, arguments with different people about different things. Um, so, yeah, I, I think being able to either, not necessarily, well, kind of the opposite where previously, you know, you guys have talked about, I guess, using scheduling the screen time. For me, it's going to be scheduling the downtime because I know the screen time is going to go up because my whole work now is going to be screen time. Um, so it's going to be the downtime that I'm going to use to, I guess, give my day some more structure. I think one of the other things, and I just wanted to bring this up and give them a shout out because it's, it's really, really cool. And they were really quick at bringing it out. So OT Australia also released a free ebook um, called Normal Life Has Been Disrupted. Um, managing mm. disruption caused by COVID-19. Uh, I believe the author is Lorraine Maynard. Um, but it's a really simply worded, easy to use booklet that I think we can use clients, OTs, everything. And it talks about like, this is the main page. Many people will be spending more time at home. So let's rethink how we adapt our daily lives by looking at and productivity, self-care, leisure, our environment, routines, and roles. And like that's the key things that we're going to look at. Um, but I think this book for not just OTs, but anyone, because they're right, we are going to be spending a lot of time at home, a lot more than we usually do. And I think even, even for those like myself who probably do spend a fair bit of time at home anyway, it's still going to be more than I'm used to. Um, and there's a lot of helpful t tips right down from setting up a workstation um, that, you know, most OTs probably just take it for granted because we train to do it. Um, right down to uh, looking at personal care, health supports, making sure you've actually got those connections still. 
Um, you know, if your pharmacy isn't close or you're not able to get to it, making sure that you have something else. Don't just neglect it because, oh, no, it'll be over in a couple of weeks. Like, no, like make sure you have this. Uh, make sure you have a plan for getting food, exercise. Exercise is massive. Even if I've seen – that's one thing I've seen a lot of recently, which is a positive thing, is I've seen well, – I'm assuming they would usually uh, do like – in-person sessions but i've seen people doing like online streaming like yoga classes and fitness classes and all sorts of stuff that people i think sarah you were saying that your your gym or your coach or whoever it was was doing online sessions that people could like follow along to and that kind of thing um so that's something i think even though yeah we're strapped at home and not everyone has equipment and that kind of stuff like exercise is still really important as is, as weird as it's going to sound, leisure. You know, it might sound stupid because we're going to have what most people are expecting to be a lot of downtime. But I think actually actively engaging in leisure activities is going to be really important. Like I know Jesse is just going to have craft all over that room. <laughs> Already craft all over that room. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's funny too when you say that about about uh, leisure time because um... – my my husband always says to me, it's a good thing we're married and, and we have two kids because you could probably work every moment of every day, you know, and I think that we're probably going to be in that space with, um, you know, having to learn how to f- use telehealth or restructure session meeting, you know, sessions with clients or how we're going to educate our students better in an online forum. There's always make work things to be done. Um, and I find when I get into that space, I do have to actively separate that out and engage in something that's, that's different. I have to say, okay, enough's enough. I'll play road hockey with the kids or get out that project you started on crocheting and finish it up and engage in that because I, my own personality is this sort of, um, bursts of, you know, sort of obsessed about something for a while. So if I get working, I could work and work and work and work. And I find it really hard to veer off and build in that leisure time Mm. or exercise time. So I think that's a really good point is making it that you're not just feeling like you're wasting time and trying to get back to what's important, which might be work or productivity, but that this is important for your holistic well-being. And, and that. So it's a good point. Definitely. Good point. I, I think one of the most important points in the whole booklet is about finding balance. Like this, this is a situation that the world hasn't been in. So there's no clear cut answer. And I've seen the, the one of the things that has many, one of many things that's annoyed me online is there's a lot of people, again, speaking in absolute, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how you cope staying at home. This is how you build a routine. This is this is this is blah 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 blah. And it's it does that's not how the world works. People aren't math formulas. Like people are all individuals and you need to find what works for for them. So, you know, what routine I have might not work for any of you guys and vice versa. And it's about like we were talking about earlier, uh, giving, I think Michelle was saying, like, give yourself some grace. Like, if you try something and you're finding, okay, this isn't working, like, don't beat yourself up about it. There's no point. Like, accept what you can control, change what you can control, and try and find something that fits better with your balance. 
Um, but there's no point in getting cranky or beating yourself up about it. And when you have the power to impact some of the things that, you know, you structure your day with or how you operate during your day, I think that's, it's going to be interesting. Cause I, if it's done right without the structure of normal workplaces, it could work for people better than like it has previously because it's essentially taking out some structure and allowing people the opportunity in some cases to find a balance that's going to work for them. Like it might be working, I don't know, as a bad example, work in half-hour bursts and have a cup of tea each time in between or something, do a lap around the lounge room each time. Like there might be something that they can do in this environment that they might not be able to do with the sort of more structured work environment that they're used to. Who knows? There's only one way to find out. Gosh, I think um, with my mindfulness background, I just keep coming back to the power of intention. And I think when we have all this free time, I can find myself, it's like, am I on social media because I'm scrolling because I want to numb out and I don't want to, I just want to look at things and not really have to think or, you know, or I want to see what everybody else is up to, or am I on social media to connect? And those two things are very different because based on my intention, um, am I like, what really is going to be restorative for me? Do I need to take a bath? Do, Do I need to read a book? Like, um, just kind of noticing why am I doing what I'm doing? And sometimes we fill our time, to distract ourselves from really dealing with what we need to deal with. And so that, again, I just, I would want to, I'm urging myself to pay attention to the, the things that I choose to do as well, because I think there can be these underlying feelings and we're going through so much right now. Just kind of notice why, why am I choosing to do that? Is it with intention or is it with avoidance? No. Yeah. I, and I think, just kind of continuing with that, it's recognizing that our world is completely different now, but life is continuing to go on. And yes, it looks different and it's changing and we're trying to figure it out. And not just like, we can't forget about everything that's going on, but like, we are also being in a position to continue to keep some of that routine, to keep some of that structure, to keep seeing clients, to keep working with our students, like what, whatever it is. And so it's, it's tying in that balance of understanding the humanistic value of dealing with stress and dealing with this uncertainty, but then also maintaining progression, moving forward and continuing with our life. That's a pretty good point to wrap up on. Is there anything else that we haven't con- we haven't touched on that any thoughts that you wanted to throw in add before we wrap up? I think we've fixed, um, I, I think, think we've I wanted I'm always a big fan of and ending on a positive note. Yeah. <laughs> um I think we need it. Um we need a I Michelle just, think... mindful moment. <laughs> Let me give you a mindful moment. Um <laughs> I have noticed in my own uh, area of work where a lot of us are, again, going into the labor pool where we're not um, doing direct on, direct therapy with patients, um, that our roles are changing. And I think I've been really, it's been really beautiful to see how as therapists, we've also been showing up for one another. 
Um, so we have in my office, some therapists are offering to take leave without pay so that other therapists can work and be able to continue to work. Um, we have therapists changing shifts. So to accommodate, um, childcare, um, I think just seeing people step up in the community. I know there's a lot of people in the community making masks right now, which I just think is both sad that we're having to get to that place where we have to make them because of how, because of the shortage. And yet at the same time, really beautiful to see people stepping up to help one another. Um, Gosh, there's, there's so many um, different things that people have reached out to me. Um, I think Brock, you were talking about the kindness pandemic and I, I think that yes. I want to, I'm going to join that group, but tell us what that is. Cause I think that's amazing. Uh, so a friend of me, uh, a friend of me, a friend of mine uh, added me to this Facebook group called the kindness pandemic. And it's started, here it is. It started, I think about eight days ago and there's like a quarter of a million people in there already, but it's literally throughout this you know, worldwide <laughs> thing that everyone is kind of sharing this experience. People are posting uh, happy and positive stories that are coming out of it, and it might be, um, you know, people are making masks. Like there's, I just saw there's some photos. Um, there's uh, signs that people have left for neighbours to help them out. I saw a sign earlier that uh, an Australian person had left on one of, in one of the supermarkets here essentially just thanking the staff for doing an amazing job to try and keep up and, you know, support that local community. It's, I've actually really thoroughly enjoyed it because one, it breaks up all the negative press, but some of the stories are really sort of deep and emotional and, but, but all are really, really positive. Um, so I'm very grateful to have been added to this group called the Kindness Pandemic. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really nice. One thing that I've been trying to kind of wrap my head around is really trying to figure out or just trying to realize that we're all doing our best. We're all doing our part right now. And I think I say this because I have a lot of friends that are still working they're working in hospitals and they're still doing their job. And here I am sitting at home and I've been at home for weeks and I feel like I'm not doing enough. And I had to stop myself the other day and be like, you know what, even though I am doing it differently and I'm at home and I'm not on the front lines, I am doing my part. So really understanding that what we do what we are doing could be looking differently at this moment, but that doesn't mean that one of us isn't doing enough or is, is doing more than the other person. And I think that just ties back into that unity piece of like, we're all just, we're all in it together and we're all just doing our best and doing our part, regardless of what that looks like. Couldn't agree more. And you are doing a great job. But I think that this education piece, I mean, we're connecting people in different ways as well. So Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks to everyone uh, here, guys, for, for having a chat. That was really fun. That went a lot smoother and a lot uh, a lot better than I would even hoped. Uh, we weren't really sure how it was going to end up the very first episode, but yeah, stoked. 
no one got into a punch-up and no one was talking over each other and it worked out really well. <laughs> so they're my two measures for success, so I count this as a win. Mm. So We're uh, adaptable. We're OTs. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much, Sarah, from OT for Life. Would you like to say anything? Closing remark? This was incredible, I think. I... I learned and I reflected as we were having this conversation and I just hope that people will listen to it and take their own reflections from it. And yeah, we'll just, we'll keep going and we're in this together. Awesome. Thank you very much Michelle from Incorporate Mindfulness. Closing remarks. Oh, um, I was just looking, one of my favorite quotes is by Mr. Rogers. Have you, and also like a plug, have you guys seen the movies? I just love, I love um, the documentary that they did. And then the one with Tom Hanks. Anyway, it's really sweet. And I feel like maybe we all need an uplifting movie instead of watching pandemic and all those other, (laughs) I've gone on both ends. I've watched both like scary things, but anyway, um, Mr. Rogers, uh, it, it says something like this, that, um, as a little boy, when he was scared, um, and he, or he would see scary things in the world, his mother would tell him to uh, look for the helpers that there are always helpers doing good things out there. And so, um, to all the occupational therapists that are listening, um, to recognize that you are a helper and however you are showing up, whatever you're doing, it is enough, um, and so to show yourself some kindness and then to, to look and acknowledge those other people's that the other people that you see that are helping. And I think to acknowledge that and tell them, like, I uh, really appreciate how much you're helping. And I, I see that you're doing that. So I think that we all need that. Beautiful, beautiful. And lastly, Wilson, any <laughs> final remarks? Um, I, I mean, I can't say it any more beautifully than that. I don't think I just wanted to thank everybody for the opportunity to be um, a guest on the show and wishing all of you the the best successes in the world. And, and thank you for all that you do as well in um, informing and inspiring us as occupational therapists around the world. Very kind. And thank you for, for coming on. I'm Brock from Occupied. Uh, thanks for coming along on this this journey, and uh, we will catch you in the next one. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know how to end that. So, yeah, we'll just, Yay! And we'll run with that. <laughs>